Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, a deep dive into the world of cryptocurrencies. Why should you consider digital assets for your portfolio? We will also discuss the outlook for the biggest cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, tips for allocating to them, and will we see an ETF based off the spot price in Bitcoin? That's with our guest, Chris King, founder and CEO of Eagle Brook Advisors. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. All right. Well, I'm Robin Murray, and let's start with a look at the markets. What are you watching for at the moment, Rusty? Well, the big stories remain in place. So obviously, major geopolitical stress in Ukraine, hopefully a peaceful resolution to it soon. And also the backdrop of very high inflation and what the central bank will do, central banks from around the world, really. So common questions from financial advisors are, given this environment, how should we be investing? And of course, we think you stay invested, but you need to aggressively diversify. And that means being multi-asset, being global, being all cap, and that includes using alternatives. That also includes the considerations of digital assets, such as cryptocurrencies. And then the questions on that is, how could they be expected to behave in this particular environment? And how should investors consider investing in them? And that brings up today's topic and today's guest. That's right. Well, let's bring him in. Chris King is founder and CEO of Eagle Brook Advisors in Miami, Florida. Chris, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Rusty Robin, thanks for having me back. Well, Chris, last time we uh, on your walk-up song, you had a very smart selection. Are you going to stick with it or are you going to expand our playlist? I'll stick with the same one, Fortunate Son, CCR. I think what I discussed last time was that, you know, it was a little bit of counterculture, you know, back then. And now we're in a very interesting climate, like you talked about on the market update. But I think it's very relevant, especially for this emerging asset class. So I'm sticking to a Fortunate Song, which is a fantastic pump up song. Absolutely. Good stuff. All right. Well, Chris, for those who didn't catch you on the last podcast, can you tell us a bit about you, your background and Eagle Brook Advisors? Of course. So my quick background, I got into Bitcoin and digital assets in 2014. From there, I was personally investing, researching, networking within the space. Back then, it was a sub $10 billion asset class. So there wasn't many you know, investment firms or job opportunities. But I was fortunate enough to move into the space full time in uh, early 2018. Uh, as a venture capital investor, they're invested in companies like Coinbase and, and BlockFi and other asset managers and hedge funds, data companies, custodians, you know, kind of the whole space. That's where I really cut my teeth in the digital asset market. Also, my father's a financial advisor. So grew up interning for him at Merrill Lynch. So also had a deep understanding of how financial advisors ran their practice, how they diligence, alternative investment managers, how they work with clients, how what their tech stack looked like. So there's a very small overlap of people that understood how to build secure, compliant, scalable investment solutions and infrastructure in the digital asset world, and people that understood wealth management as well. 
I was actually looking to write a check and invest in a company that was building investment solutions for financial advisors. And after looking at you know a couple hundred deals, found that everyone in the crypto space didn't really know what an RIA was, didn't know how financial advisors ran their practice, didn't know what SMA stood for. And then back in 2018, late 2018, early 2019, a lot of financial advisors were demanding exposure to Bitcoin digital assets and client portfolios. But a lot of the key decision makers at these home offices, whether it's a independent RIA, you know, IBD, Wirehouse, uh, whatever that structure was, a lot of the key decision makers still thought it was too risky to add that kind of to their business. However, there was a lot of information asymmetry in a very underserved market. My thesis was that eventually these uh, home offices were going to add a crypto offering. And I wanted to build a technology company, uh, an investment platform that really built that gap, starting with the two most important things, which were security and compliance. So th- those are kind of the key pillars that we founded Eaglebrook on, security, compliance, and also education and training for advisors. Without those three things, it doesn't make any sense for advisors to add an asset allocation to this asset class. So left around three years to start Eaglebrook, really with the mission of bridging the wealth management market with the digital asset market. We built the first separately managed account platform for the digital asset market. And we are now the largest SMA platform working with right now over 62 RIAs, 500 financial advisors, and we manage over 150 million in assets. So really excited to continue you know, talking to advisors, talking to home offices, providing this solution, really starting with the education, how cold storage works. And then we're scaling up to launching some exciting products, which we can talk about. But primarily, we work and advise wealth management firms on starting with allocating to Bitcoin and Ether as kind of your core allocation with tax loss harvesting and rebalancing and integration with firms like Orion and uh, Adapar and other types of reporting platforms. So you can see it kind of with one view and it's integrated to your practice. So that's kind of what we do at a high level. Happy to dive you know, into any other aspects of that. But that's where we are right now. And we're a pretty big player for you know, the RAs that are offering digital asset solutions to their clients. Well, a lot to talk about there. So let's first review the basic argument for digital assets, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum. And we did talk about this the last time that you were on the show, but how have those arguments changed over the last year? That's a great question. So to answer that simply, I would say the thesis is a longer term thesis. So we're actually still seeing it play out. I would say that the investment case that I made on the last call Uh, the last podcast is somewhat similar and unchanged. Bitcoin is a better version of digital gold that can both be defensive, right? Similar to gold as it's independent, right? It's not tied to any geography or market. It's money and a monetary asset that you can trust that the government cannot inflate or debase, right? So that makes it really attractive. It's scarce like gold. It takes hardware, energy, and very capital intensive to create new Bitcoins, just like it's hard to create new gold, whereas fiat currency, it's it's somewhat easy to print, right? So it's very similar to gold in that case. And then it also has a low correlation to traditional investments, which makes it a good fit within your alternative bucket. So it has those similarities to gold, but then it has this upside where it's actually a digital asset. And as we continue to move to this digital age and this internet age, It is capitalizing on the network effects that Bitcoin has. We're at about a market capitalization of 900 billion. 
and gold at about 11 trillion. We think you can continue to take market share. So it can be both a defensive asset in a geopolitical crisis like we're having now or in a market downturn where stocks and bonds are going down, which is kind of the thesis for gold, kind of that safe haven inflation resistant thesis. But it can also be a growth asset and a risk asset at the same time. And we think those characteristics makes it a, a great addition to the portfolio, like we talked about last time, kind of in a three to four percent allocation. I'll even back up a second, talking about digital assets as a whole. At the end of 2020, so the beginning of 2021, there was about 130 million users of digital assets. And you think of digital assets as a technology, just like the internet is a technology. Uh, right now, we estimate there's anywhere between 230 million to 260 million users of digital assets. Forgetting about kind of all of the characteristics and the quantitative and qualitative arguments, if you just look at the adoption of this asset class from a user and capital perspective, it's following a very similar, if not faster, adoption curve to the internet. And that is a big piece of evidence that helps us feel comfortable with investing clients' assets into a technology that is still evolving and technology is still being built around it, right? You still don't have a Bitcoin ETF. Crypto SMAs are just becoming to you know mature, right? As we get approved on different RIA platforms, Ethereum is scaling from you know to ETH2, where it'll be a lot easier to build products and services on top of it. People are just figuring out how to use wallets to buy NFTs and all these things, right? So the infrastructure really is still playing out, but the adoption is there, which is something that we monitor very closely, and those numbers are are pretty strong. You know, evidence or argument for you know why you should be investing just from a very very high levels that adoption is growing similar to the internet. I think ether we've seen a lot of interest since we past spoke. Obviously, the big news is really NFTs coming into the mainstream and that being somewhat of a first use case. Now, do I think pictures of apes that are going for 250k are the future of the internet? I'm not sure, but I think there's a lot of interesting applications for NFTs for decentralized finance, for crypto gaming, for entertainment that a lot of traditional companies and brands are starting to leverage so they can digitize their products and service in a way that both brings value to the company and bring values to the consumer. So I think we're going to continue to see more applications and use cases of products and services on top of Ethereum. And that's the bull case for Ethereum is that Ethereum is going to be the settlement layer for Web3, right? The next era of the internet. So we're very bullish on those two assets specifically. If you're going to allocate to this asset class, you'd want to hold those in a, it's kind of your core portfolio because they're the most de-risked assets because they have network effects. So they're, in my opinion, the only true digital assets or crypto assets that have true network effects that is really hard to get to when you're launching a new you know, digital asset or crypto asset network. Once you get those network effects and have that mass infrastructure and amount of users, it can keep growing just how Facebook did and Uber and Amazon and Instagram and all of these assets that have network effects. So I would say the high level thesis hasn't changed. Some of the theses are starting to play out just how we're seeing Bitcoin continue to go up in this you know, geopolitical environment more as kind of that macro hedge. And we continue to see that play out over the next five or 10 years as well. Well, you know, I do have to say our podcast interview that was uh, last summer was definitely solid. And I guess the reason why we wanted to riff on a lot of these topics again today, not only because of the backdrop right now, but 
I think anecdotally, just talking to financial advisors, it seems like most of them have changed the way they talked about digital assets. So obviously you're an early believer, so you really haven't changed too much in what you're thinking. But I guess you did mention another thing that I would like to follow up on is when we talked last summer, you were saying kind of a good allocation. Of course, it depends on the individual investor is approximately three to four percent. How are investors actually allocating? Is it along those lines? Does that number really change much at all? Because it seems like more advisors and institutional investors are accepting the asset class. So have the allocations changed? That's a great question. Now we have a lot more assets and a lot more clients, so we have better data on how clients are allocating. It's actually exactly within those lines. Our average allocation, because when you onboard with our platform, we ask for the client's liquid net worth. And then obviously we know what the cash allocation is because we're receiving the wire and investing that. It's actually right at around 3.5%. So on average, out of the 500 advisors that are allocating, when they are making an allocation, they're making somewhat more meaningful allocation than 1%. I hear a lot in the media. In reality, it's closer to 3.5% because the advisors and the clients that are actually investing do have strong conviction, like you were saying. And if they are going to get off zero and allocate to this asset class, they're going to do it in a meaningful way. That's not too aggressive, right? It's not 15%. But if the thesis continues to play out, and we see these liquid venture capital style returns over the next, let's call it seven to 10 years, we think that you know it's going to be very meaningful in your portfolios. And even to add to that, I knew that you wanted to talk about uh, rebalancing. Almost every single advisor that's allocating that in that position allows us to drift and views this as a illiquid investment, even though we have daily liquidity, you can get out at any time, you can raise cash, obviously. They're not touching it for five years and they will let it drift from up uh, called a 4% allocation all the way up to potentially a 20% allocation, right? Because that's how they view it more as a illiquid, you know, very long-term, long investment horizon alternative investment that's going to have, you know, have ups and downs, it's going to have volatility, but you're really betting on this technology and this adoption rate that we're seeing in real time. How do you personally invest in digital assets? You're a pioneer in this space and you believe in it. So, how do you invest in it? What's the percentage of your overall portfolio? That's a good question. So it's much higher than I would say what I would recommend clients because of my age and risk profile. I would say it's about 25% of my overall holdings, kind of in a liquid bucket of multi-asset portfolio. We're actually rolling out a strategy called Eaglebrook All Asset, which will be kind of our flagship strategy. And that's basically how I hold my assets right now. With that core position, Bitcoin and ETH, right, 50 to 70% of my portfolio. But then the other 30 to 50% would be the most compelling assets in the other categories that I mentioned trading, NFTs, game, crypto gaming, entertainment, metaverse, decentralized finance, you know, picking anywhere between five to 15 assets there. So that's kind of how I allocate to the liquid part, you know, of this asset class. So that should be coming available in later Q2, which we're really excited about. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Question for Robin. Are you investing in digital assets or anything? I'm not. No, I I, I sort of follow the advice of don't invest in things you don't understand. <laughs> I just don't feel <laughs> well, like- Well, after I this podcast, you'll enough. be investing. I know, right? But I don't know. Just feel like it don't grasp it quite enough. Well, for full disclosure, in my taxable investment accounts, I've rebalanced down to 5%. Just 
because that's generally the advice we give. And then in my retirement portfolios, I'm closer to 1%. So I guess that kind of works out to those numbers, basically. But you know, I actually struggled with it. And it kind of goes back to the rebalancing question is that obviously my allocation, because of the, the huge price gains from you know like 12 to 18 months ago, my allocation was a lot greater than 5%. So I rebalanced it down. So it is interesting that a lot of investors are letting it drift, but still, what triggers are financial advisors investors using? Is it like every quarter, every six months, or is it just a number within their overall portfolio? I think they choose the number in terms of the actual rebalancing of their overall portfolio. However, we do see advisors rebalance either quarterly, semi-annually for their between Bitcoin and Ether, right? So they'll be that quarterly or semi-annually rebalancing, whereas they actually just let the actual total 4% position drift you know, 2% to 8%, wherever it might be going, right? They let that drift and don't rebalance that. Now, that might be a function of, hey, this is held at a separate custodian for how Eagle Brook is structured, right? It's held at a separate custodian. If you want to rebalance, it's not like selling a ticker, right? Uh, and selling the cash super quickly. So I think it'll be easier to rebalance when a spot Bitcoin ETF comes out. But I think a lot of advisors from a philosophical perspective actually want it to drift because they're viewing it as a long-term investment horizon where we could see you know, the market go down 50% for 12 to 18 months, right? Or you wouldn't want to touch it or anything. Or we could see it go up you know, two to three times over a certain period of time. So that volatility and that you know, variance is really why they just want to hold it as opposed to you know, having transaction costs and kind of moving in and out of the market, incurring capital gains all of those things. Well, Chris, there are two reasons many financial advisors have not gone into digital assets yet. And first is really what I just mentioned, and that is they feel they need to learn more about it. And the second one is that they're nervous about the risk. So let's hit both of those topics. First, what are your recommendations for information or education on digital assets, both for people that are new to the asset class and for those who have some experience? So two things. One, I will plug Eaglebrook again. We have a full educational platform. So actually what we do with our advisors is they go through training modules. Very simple. What is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? Why invest in Bitcoin? What are the merits? What are the risks? Same thing with Ethereum. What is Ethereum? What is Ether, the native asset that powers Ethereum? How does it fit in my portfolio? Again, what are the risks? How is Bitcoin compared to gold? How does cold storage custody work? So we have these modular training modules that advisors have to take, and they have to take it before they can actually start allocating. They have to take an exam where they have to get above a 70%. So that is a kind of knocks out two things. One, the education aspect, but two, the compliance aspect. So if you're getting uh, audited or something like that and say, okay, hey, you're, you're advising clients on digital assets, obviously there are a lot to do. What is your training program? It's like, oh, we actually work with this training program. This is how it works. This is what advisors have to go through. It's very thorough. And the advisors now know how to talk about the merits and the risks of the investment and communicate with their clients correctly. And also you can help with like suitability for you know what type of client would be suitable for. So that's how we work with advisors. If you're looking to, I would say, kind of become orange-pilled or start to understand digital assets, I think there's two very strong books. One is called The Bitcoin Standard. That's mainly focused on Bitcoin only as a monetary asset that you can trust, that is decentralized, that the government you know, can inflate. 
that's you know fully digital, which gives it you know great network effects and great utility. So that's kind of goes through you know Austrian economics, why that makes sense, and it'll get you to buy Bitcoin hopefully by reading that book. And then the other one, which shows I would say use cases for other crypto assets and crypto asset networks, is the book called Crypto Assets. And that one is also a great resource on learning about things outside of just Bitcoin and how you know there's going to be a lot of different use cases for blockchain-based networks and blockchain-based assets over the next 10 years. As you know, we're maybe not even in the late 90s of this technology. We might still be in the you know early 90s or 80s, right? As these protocols and this technology is just being developed, and we even even had that era where you know we reached that you know mass amount of users where we get to a billion people that have digital asset wallets that are using decentralized finance products or using blockchain-based assets in various ways, tokenized assets in various ways. So we think there's a lot of room to run, but those are some great resources that we use and we recommend to clients. All right. Well, the second one was the question of risk. Bitcoin over the last three months has had twice the volatility of the NASDAQ. And there's an expectation that as the asset class continues to mature, that overall volatility and risk is going to decrease. You've talked about this a little bit so far, but what's your take on that? Do you think it's going to become a less risky asset in the future? In the longer term future, I think in the short to midterm, uh, there's going to be a lot of volatility, right? Bitcoin, (laughs) these digital assets are going to remain very volatile because they're non-productive, they're speculative. There's no agreed upon valuation metrics, right? So I actually expect the volatility to be the same, if not more, which obviously shows that this is a risky asset class. But in my opinion, volatility is actually good if you're looking at this and you're not going to sell for, let's call it five to seven years, mainly because you don't care about volatility. Obviously, you see your portfolio can be down. But for us to get to where we think we're going to be, which is, let's say, you know, roughly a large percentage of gold's market capitalization of $11 trillion, we still have a lot of room to run. And we're not going to get there in a straight line. It's going to be a very bumpy road. You know, it's going to have the, you know, the four to five year cycles uh, in terms of how crypto moves from you know bull markets to bear markets, different hype cycles, capital inflections, infrastructure being built, new products and services, new entrepreneurs building new consumer-facing and business-facing applications, and more users coming into the network, which then makes you know other products and services usable. So that's kind of where I would say we are in terms of volatility and risk. I would say if the question really is why isn't every financial advisor allocated to this space right now. I would say the biggest one is career risk, where like you said, you're not investing because you don't understand it, right? So it's really that educational gap of a lot of advisors not understanding it and thinking that if this goes down 25% after I tell the client to invest, I'm going to lose my client, right? So being able to explain it to clients, understand that it is a long-term investment, you're betting on the adoption of a new technology and while you're betting on a new adoption of that technology, that's what I think will reduce career risk. I'm just looking at it right now, the list of firms that are building products and services that are bullish on digital assets are massive. Fidelity, State Street, Goldman just did their first transaction, Tesla, Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, BNY, Mellon, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, just <laughs> every one of these companies is not just doing a you know a small press release saying that they have a proof of concept. They're investing tens of millions, billions of dollars into blockchain-based assets, crypto asset networks, 
And I think that's going to continue over time. The fact that these companies are doing that, I think will reduce the career risk that I would say even right now, a lot of advisors believe that you know if they do this, they could potentially get fired because you know if it goes up four times, you know, great, you increase your assets, you, your client's super happy, you know, you made a great recommendation, but it's not going to change your practice. But if it's down twenty percent, that's what's going to stick out like a you know like sore thumb on quarterly performance reviews. So that's kind of I would say that's the risk that a lot of advisors face right now. But I think every single month, the career risk for doing this actually reduces. So I think volatility will stay the same, but I think as career risk reduces and more capital does come into the space and the market goes up, volatility should go down, but it's not going to be kind of like a year over year volatility shift. It might be kind of like a much longer period uh, until we see volatility decrease. Well said. I think career risk is one of those key determinants of defining an investment manager or financial advisor sort of investment philosophy, how willing are they to be different than like the television benchmarks is really critical, I think. All right. So we talked about one aspect of risk. And, you know, another is a big argument for considering digital assets is their ability to diversify multi-asset portfolios. So first, on one hand, you have just volatility. And actually, I, I believe that relative volatility to the market should be reduced over time. It's probably still remain more volatile in the overall market. But lately, when it comes to talking about correlations, so the ability to diversify equity-dominated portfolios, the narrative has shifted a little bit that crypto has simply become a high beta or risk-on investment. So that means the diversification benefit may not be as great as people might have thought it was. What do you think about that? So I would say Bitcoin and Ether are risk assets, right? I think a big part of why they've become so successful is in a low interest rate environment, people are looking for higher returns. And when you look at kind of the volatility and the past performance of digital assets, a lot of people start turning to investing in Bitcoin and Ether specifically. So even though it trades as a risk asset, and just as we've seen during COVID and this most recent geopolitical crisis, Ukraine, when there's a sell-off, everything sells off, right? But the performance out of these black swan events, the digital assets have performed strongly. And then if you look at the rolling correlation, one-month correlations over five years, the correlations to stocks and fixed income is extremely low. I don't have the exact numbers on me, but I think the correlation for Bitcoin to the S&P 500 over five years was like 0.08, basically non-correlated, and then had like a minus 10 correlation to fixed income. Don't quote me on those. That Those might have shifted since our last research study. But basically, there's a low to non-correlation to traditional assets, which in periods of you know sell-offs and volatility and black swan events, yes, everything is correlated to one. And it is treated like a risk asset. But because it's not correlated or tied to any financial market, any actual central organization, any earnings reports, any geography or any, any specific financial market, I think that's why it actually, over longer periods of time, it is a very uh, non or low correlated assets, which actually does improve the diversification benefits in a portfolio, even though it is a risk asset. So you disagree. Okay. <laughs> no, I know. I hear what you're saying. Hey, but related to the question of risk, you recently published a paper on your website called the Bitcoin Market Cycle. It had a couple key conclusions. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I think this is a big thought process that I have in the market. It's a thesis called Lengthening Cycles, Diminishing Returns, driven by what's called the halving cycle. So 
every four years or 210,000 blocks, the Bitcoin reward, which is how Bitcoin is minted, drops by 50%. So in May of 2020, there was 1,800 Bitcoin that were minted every single day. Uh, when the halving event occurred, that was dropped by 50%. So right now, 900 Bitcoin are minted per day. Now, the whole market knows that this is happening, right? It's written in the code. Every four years until 2140, the incremental supply will drop by 50%. But it still is a material supply shock. And the only time that there is a supply shock in Bitcoin's algorithm and in its code. So if demand stays the same or increases and the incremental supply, basically the inflation rate drops by 50%, what you typically get is an increase in hype, an increase in price, which leads to a positive feedback loop, which culminates in a bull market, which is what we saw from May 2020 to November 2021, which is when Bitcoin reached uh, around 69,000. Right now it's trading around 48,000. That's kind of what drives these markets. So these kind of cycles happen every four to five years. We believe that the cycles are actually lengthening and the returns are diminishing, obviously, as more capital comes into this market, right? So when there was less capital, a few billion dollars, Bitcoin going from you know, $2 billion market cap to $100 billion market cap, there was a lot more return. Right now at a $900 billion market cap, those returns are going to decrease. The cycles are going to lengthen because it's going to take more time for capital to move to the market. And that's really what the paper was about, understanding that, hey, you know, now we're kind of in the middle of a cycle. The last halving event was May 2020. The ne next one is March 2024 is when the next supply shock will be. I think that you know, traditionally the bottom of the market is around 18 months before that supply shock. So I think over the next now, you know, I'm just trying to do the math in my head, six to 12 months, we're probably going to move sideways or down. But that just shows that it would be a good time to accumulate or actually take a position in this stage as these cycles are lengthening. So that's kind of where what we think the general outlook is going to be. I think a lot of institutional investors, obviously what we do work with high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals are going to continue to take positions over the next 12 months. You know, and hopefully, you know, what we're hoping for is actually the market kind of does flatten out and trade a bit sideways over the next 12 months. So Eagle Brook can, you know, help move clients into the market at a, at a attractive cost basis. And then as the next having event supply shock occurs, because our clients are holding for five plus years, they're going to see some pretty strong returns in this asset class. So that's kind of what the paper was about for Bitcoin specifically. But Bitcoin's price drives the whole market as it's the largest asset. So kind of all the other uh, altcoins, you know, go with it. So that's what the you know high level thesis was with that paper. It's a good paper. We'll make sure we have a link to it in the show notes. Let's talk about the outlook now for Bitcoin Ethereum. So when I was kind of thinking about this question a few weeks ago when we kind of set up this podcast, it was kind of a whole different market environment. So the questions I was getting was like, why is Bitcoin down on the year? We have geopolitical stress. We have high inflation. This should be a perfect environment. Everybody's saying, well, obviously must be rising rates. But as we're talking right now, these cryptocurrencies are actually up on the year when stocks and bonds are down, which proves to your point about diversification. But really, I guess the question is, so are rising rates an issue? I mean, it appears like it may not be because the market is up. And also another question are seasonal factors. Is it just kind of the first quarter is a week time of year for cryptocurrencies? 
Yeah, so I would say there are strong headwinds with the rising rate environment specifically, right? Because, you know, low rates seeking out return. That's why a lot of, you know, capital allocators and individuals were allocating to this market. So I'd say it would would and will be a headwind as rates rise over the remainder of the year. So I would say that definitely will play into the price action over the next nine months, kind of right, kind of the rest of the year. What was your other question again? Oh, uh, the market being up. So I think that even going back into my comments on the Bitcoin market cycle is that Bitcoin has its own cycle, right? And it's part of the broader business and economic cycle, but we're headed into the part of the Bitcoin market cycle where uh, we believe we'll be trading kind of sideways or down. So I was actually somewhat surprised to see you know Bitcoin trend up. And I think what's propping it up, which historically it should be trending down at this stage, you know, after a you know run up to sixty nine thousand and then drop to thirty five thousand, um, the fact that there is geopolitical tension and high inflation is actually bringing up higher from where it traditionally should be. So I think that's why where we are right now is that. You know, the market, Bitcoin market cycle traditionally should be down a little bit more, but that is driving a little bit higher. You know, we'll see kind of what the rising rate environment will affect the price action. Uh, Seasonality, I don't have it in front of me, but I know that there is seasonality, but also seasonality related to what year it is and where we are in the market cycle. April is typically a strong month for Bitcoin. Um, And I think it could be a ton of reasons, you know, one being it potentially being, you know, tax season over, people are starting of a new quarter, right? Which is when people do performance reviews and their advisors talk to their clients, or people are just, you know, rebalancing and adding allocation, you know, getting their investments in order for the rest of this year. So I think there's a lot of factors into that, but there's definitely, you know, strong seasonality and reasons for uh, seasonality specifically in Bitcoin, depending on the year it is related to the more, you know, four to five year Bitcoin market cycle. Well, Chris, President Biden recently passed an executive order on Bitcoin. Can you talk about what the key takeaways of that order are for advisors and investors to note? Yes. So this was extremely positive for us and our clients. The major factor and high level takeaway was that, first of all, we're an SEC registered investment advisor. Our clients are SEC registered investment advisors. Basically, what this executive order said was, hey, we are going to make strides to let everyone knows know what the regulations and what the rules are. We want to give clear guidance on that. So we obviously wrote analysis on what our thought was, sent it to advisors, and it made advisors feel more comfortable with the fact that regulatory risk is extremely decreased because of that executive order. And regulations will come out, but in a positive way that will tell advisors how they can add this to clients, how they can talk to clients about it, how custody works, all those things. So I would say the executive order was some of the most positive news because, again, a big limiting factor uh, that factors into career risk is perceived regulatory risk. Now that perceived regulatory risk is decreasing, that perceived career risk is also decreasing. All right. Well, you have touched on this already, but kind of in a nutshell, what's your outlook for Bitcoin for the remainder of the year and let's say the next 10 years? Good question. So I would want to reiterate that you know there are some headwinds with the rising rate environment, obviously, Inflation is extremely high, which is a driver. So those will kind of be fighting against each other. Inflation starts to go down and rates start to rise. I expect Bitcoin, like I said, kind of trade sideways 
or potentially down towards the end of this year, which actually makes it attractive to you know accumulate or take a position you know during this time, whether it's in you know Q2, Q3, or Q4. So I would say for the next nine months, more likely sideways down than a big upswing to 75, 100K, right? From a long-term perspective, 10-year perspective, I believe that Bitcoin will reach parity with gold because I think it's a better version of gold. There's a lot of generational preferences and transfer as wealth for people that would rather hold Bitcoin a portfolio than gold. Us being a you know in a digitally native world, a lot of the wealth is getting transferred to digitally native generations. We believe that that will be a big driver of demand as well as over the next 10 years, I expect almost every single institutional investor to have a Bitcoin allocation, central banks starting to take Bitcoin allocations, and also what Eaglebrook's working on right now, which is high net worths and ultra high net worth individuals taking Bitcoin allocations as well. So I, we think that's where a lot of the, the drivers will come from. And I think the last driver is, I'd say weaker fiat currencies. Bitcoin is going to gain a lot of market share from those, not USD, the Euro, the renminbi or the yen, but I would say the other fiat currencies, which are much more volatile, we think uh, a lot of those countries like we see in El Salvador are going to actually switch to um, you know, Bitcoin potentially being legal tender. And this will all take time, but we think that's kind of where we'll be heading and where Bitcoin will reach that parity with gold coming from all those different areas. You know, I agree. I think that this asset class will strategically become part of allocations over time. But you know what? It's it's probably one of those things where it depends on recent performance, sort of like real assets. You know, after it's performed really well, people will probably increase their strategic allocations. And after it's performed poorly for a sustained period, it'll be, just drop out. When quite frankly, you know, I'm a professional asset allocator. If there's a strategic argument for it, it should just always be in there. Obviously, you can make little tactical adjustments. But anyway, that's my view. All right. So last year, you correctly called that there would be no ETF on spot prices in Bitcoin. And you mentioned that we might see one later this year. Is that your current take? We might still see one maybe this year? So I will preface this disclosure and this bias that it's in my business's best interest for there not to be a Bitcoin ETF. Exactly. Yeah. But it's looking like it's not going to happen this year. Just talking to regulatory counsel, talking to you know other asset managers that we're looking to work with that have filings in place. We think it's going to not be a 2023 thing, maybe a 2024 thing. So we don't believe that there's going to be a, a Bitcoin ETF this year. Two more quick questions on ETFs. So one is, I guess, related to ETFs is that there's a couple products that trade every single day that provide exposure to Bitcoin and the major cryptocurrencies. And of course, they trade at very large discounts to their net asset values. So you get that question a lot. Why are they trading at such large discounts? So the discounts and premiums on the OTC spot, I think the major issue is that it basically can't be redeemed, right? So you can't actually redeem for Bitcoin or sell at, at par value, right? So I think that's why we're seeing these major discounts for these OTC traded trusts. Some do trade at premiums, but the, the largest one, GBTC, obviously trades at a discount. So I think that's why we're seeing is the fact that you can't you know, redeem for par value of the assets, which causes it to trade at a discount varying from, you know, I think right now, like 10 to 20%. So I guess that's an argument for using Eaglebrook. Correct. Because of the tracking error, you know, everyone looks at it, they're saying, oh, it's a discount to the par value. This should trade, you know, at par at some point, which 
Yes, that's possible, but there's also a risk that it trades at a 30% discount, right? So an even more uh, higher discount, which if you're a financial advisor and there's major tracking errors, a fiduciary, you'd want to put your client into a investment vehicle where there is not major tracking error. With SMA specifically, it is a direct offering, meaning your client owns the assets directly at a qualified custodian. So there's little to no tracking error because they're actually owning the asset and they get the appreciation of the asset, not it linked to something in, you know, some type of, you know, structure. You're not owning shares, you're not owning, you know, paper version of it. You actually own the physical Bitcoin and Ether in your name, in institutional grade cold storage at a qualified custodian through an SEC registered investment advisor, which is how we've closed, you know, 62 RAAs, you know, thousands of clients. Is is that structure being very attractive? But you know, it's a little bit more difficult to get to because you can't point and click and invest in your brokerage account just like you can with you know, the OTC public trusts and some of the futures-based ETFs. Okay, there's another argument that some people don't want to invest directly in the cryptocurrencies themselves. It's sort of like going back to the whole digital gold argument. So back when there was the gold rush, you know, how many people actually mining gold made money, but all those companies that provided you know, all the tools to mine the gold, they're the ones that made the money. So there is an argument to invest in companies that are sort of in the digital asset space and not directly into the digital assets themselves. What is your take on that argument? Great question. So my background is investing in companies building the picks and shovels. Eaglebrook is a company <laughs> building the picks and shovels. We went back and looked at a lot of these, I would say later stage deals as well as a lot of the, the public companies right now, which are a lot of the Bitcoin mining companies. And what we found is almost at any given moment, if you invested in Bitcoin directly versus investing in the mining company or the picks and shovels infrastructure company, Bitcoin outperformed in almost every single case going back you know, five years. After seeing that data, and you know, I looked at that data back in believe, 2019, look back at it again, same thing. We think it's a little bit different than you know, mining for gold. And if you're a Bitcoin miner, you are, are the ones that are actually, you know, looking to to mine it where actually it's a lot less expensive just to buy and hold the asset directly. And if this asset's going to appreciate, you know, Bitcoin and Ether continue to be category winners, which we believe they will, because they do have the network effects that you're actually going to get better returns by owning the assets directly versus investing in picks and shovels. I'll make a prediction right now that uh, from the day now, say over five years, Bitcoin will outperform Coinbase, right? As kind of being like, you know, one of the you know, premier picks and shovels players that anyone can invest in because it's public. I would expect Bitcoin to outperform uh, Coinbase, you know, over that period. Juicy. I like it. All right. Since you were last on in June, what has surprised you most about this asset class in this industry, either positive or negative? What's been the biggest surprise? So I would say specifically in the industry we work in is that Every single, well, two things. A lot of RIAs and wealth management platforms are looking at this as defensive instead of offensive and a business opportunity as opposed to an accommodation. So those are two very distinct things because if they're looking at it as a business opportunity as opposed to just, oh, our, our advisors want this, let's do it. You know, They partner with a firm like ours, put marketing dollars into it, and it can really be a great add-on service for their existing clients. That's not just an accommodation. They can monetize, right? So that's one thing. Two, every single firm is going to have a digital asset offering. And they're all not created equal. And they're going to have different levels of engagement, 
So you really want to choose the right vehicle and the right partner if you're, you know, a small RIA all the way up to, you know, large TAMPs and asset management platforms and wirehouses and things like that, because the vehicle that you use and the firm that you partner with is really going to match the success of what, you know, you actually moving to this market correctly. And if you choose the wrong partner or the wrong investment vehicle, it could set you back years and your competitors can, you know, really get ahead of you and take larger market share, take clients. So I would say I didn't expect to hear that from a lot of CEOs and decision makers at those firms. However, that surprised me. What's also, I wouldn't say it surprised me, but uh, it's pretty eye-opening is that even though there's so much demand to do this, there's so much opportunity for monetization with these firms. Uh, a lot of these deals are still taking 6 to 12 months to I would say close and then 6 to 12 months to ramp up and launch. So it's really taking anywhere from a year to 2 years once the decision has been made to actually do something, right? And then from that period, then the clients, you know, need to get on board, the advisors need to get on board as well, which can be another 6 to 12 months. So like to start to see asset client engagement and real, you know, assets be flow through a platform you can be 24, 36 months from when the decision was made at the home office or at the executive level. So I think given that this is now you know, a few years into our company's history and other companies that are doing similar things, that we're going to start to see a lot more assets and engagement from advisors and from the wealth channel flowing into the digital asset market through the managed account structure. Good stuff. All right. We have a new question that we started asking everybody since you were last on. And it basically goes like this. So in our profession, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So what do you do to maintain your health, either, well, both physical and mental, to ensure that you're performing at a high level? Yes. So I, I would say it's evolved as the company has evolved. <laughs> so we do a lot at Eagle Brook specifically with fitness and mental health and all of those things. So at the beginning, I would say I was working, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, getting the company off the ground, traveling once or twice a week. <laughs> I would say as we've scaled, I think the quality of work first time of work is extremely important. So I'd say I'm probably now working less hours, but working smarter, not not harder. And that's definitely very helpful to make sure you're impactful as possible, working out every single day, eating healthy, you know, talking to friends and family, I would say that's a lot. It sounds very cliche, but I think a lot of people actually that are, you know, have a lot of stress and, and a lot of pressure don't do those things properly, don't wind down properly. So those are kind of the, the three things that I use um, to make sure that I'm performing at a high level, which sound very simple, but to actually do them every single day is probably harder. So that's how I, you know, like to stay at top of my game. I also think like, you know, if you're, having a stressful day, going on a five-minute walk can really change everything around. So a lot of things related to yeah, men mental health, uh, fitness, eating healthy really helps you stay on top and, and performing as strongly as possible. Good stuff. Well, this has been a great discussion today, Chris. But before we let you go, do you have any content recommendations for advisors and investors, books, podcasts, newsletters, anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so actually, you kind of stumbled across again, the, there's a really good investment case for Ether by Packy McCormick called Own the Internet. So um, Rusty and Robbie, I'll send that to over. Maybe you can link that in there. So you kind of have a Bitcoin market cycle and then an uh, investment case for Ether. And aside from that, strongly recommend if you're just getting into this, 
Market for the First Time, The Bitcoin Standard, and Crypto Assets. Those two books, which I can send the links to as well. I might have recommended those last time. Then another good podcast is On the Brink, which is Castle Island Ventures podcast, which you two might be familiar with. So I would say those are probably the best resources for people looking to you know get a strong understanding of this space and you know how to think about it in their portfolios as well as their, in their client portfolios. All right. That's great. Well, it's been really fun to have you on the show today. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about the latest thinking from Eaglebrook? So you can go to our website, www.eaglebrookadvisors.com. You can request access to our platform and you can add your email to our distribution list where you get our weekly market commentary, our monthly market outlooks, all of our educational materials, as well as our white papers, which we typically put out quarterly related to different areas of the market, as well as updates on you know the different strategies that we're launching more on the active side and, and capital raising and things like that. So that's where you can uh, follow Eaglebrook as well as on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter as well, just Eaglebrook Advisors. Awesome. I have to give a shout out to the, uh, the commentary you guys send out as well. And it's easy to read, easy to follow, and a NASA class that people are trying to understand. So that's really good. Well, Chris, thank you as well. And I love the idea of you just being an annual visitor, kind of being our in-house weighing machine crypto expert. All right. I got the thumbs up on it. (laughs) Thanks again. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Robin. Good to have you. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.